everyone. Bankless Nation, welcome to another episode of State of the Nation. We are super excited to have you here on the docket today. We are talking about the state of NFTs. They've been everywhere lately. They've been hyped lately. They've made major newspaper publications lately. Everyone is talking about NFTs. And we brought on Andrew Steinwald, who is going to give us the state of NFTs. Andrew is a guy who predicted NFTs before they were a thing. So we're going to dig into that. David, how are you doing today, man? Absolutely fantastic. Still trying to get my head wrapped around NFTs. And I think the whole industry is. We all are. Because so much has changed in the past like two to three months. And a lot of bankless content around NFTs lately has been uh, going to the artists, going to the people that weren't about crypto, that weren't about Ethereum, but discovered NFTs. And they were like, wow, this is really cool. And so we wanted to go to the artists and say, hey, why are NFTs cool? What do, what do NFTs mean to you? Now, this is the opposite. We are going to the guy who was paying attention to NFTs before everyone else was, before they were hyped up. And so I would call him, he's at my personal expert on NFTs. And so he was also one of our two guests on the Bankless episode, The Bull Case for NFTs, which I think we did back in September of 2020. Uh, and he made some very bold predictions that I thought were, were crazy back then. One of them being that NFTs will be like, I think either 100 to 1,000x times larger than DeFi. And I was like, blasphemy. Uh, but now I can actually start to see it. Now I can you actually know, start to see it. It's, it especially felt like blasphemy, like uh, something way off the beaten path right after DeFi summer in, right after in DeFi September summer, yeah. when we were mm -hmm. talking about it. DeFi had this explosive, you know, three or four months. And here's Andrew coming on talking about how big NFTs were going to be. And I remember Andrew and Jake talking about a trillion dollar market cap market opportunity. It seems a lot more likely now. So we are going to dig into that. Guys, if this is your first state of the nation, these usually come out on Tuesdays where we're broadcasting it live on Monday uh, today um, because we needed to, to accommodate schedules, but we generally release it every Tuesday. We, this will also be on the podcast as well. David, before we get in, we should do a couple of announcements. First of all, we've got the one confirmation podcast that just premiered today. This is one mm -hmm. of those podcasts. I feel like it's 90 minutes of listening time, but there's like a million dollars in right. value inside of those 90 minutes. It's one of those podcasts with investors where you're like, wow, this entire mental model is so beneficial to how I invest in, in the future that uh, like the dividends of listening to it and absorbing the material are like <laughs> more, more than worth your time. Um, uh, there, there were a number of, I guess, I guess phrases from that podcast, but the theme of the episode was authenticity, mm -hmm. authentic projects, authentic founders, authentic, authentic data authentic data even and there's this this beautiful through line that throughout uh what else you want to say about that podcast to to tease people and get people interested in it right so my the, my biggest takeaway was that um with Ethereum, with open blockchains, where all information about the state of things is equally accessible by the whole world, no longer is investing about how much better information can you get because everyone can get the same information. Now it's about how, how much better can you interpret or digest that information. Uh, and so that is a new, that's a different paradigm that we now have to account for when we uh, think about investing in this space. Someone uh, you know, made the quip during that episode. I won't say who, if you'll have to stay tuned to, to find that out, that Bitcoin is money for the institutions. Mm -hmm. Ether is money for the people, That was hot. which really stuck out on me. So listen to that episode. It's definitely a hot episode. Speaking of hot episodes, we have Drake returning to the Drake. podcast. Drake returns. 
the Justin Drake, of course, Ethereum <laughs> researcher. And this time, this is kind of a follow-up. It's a sister episode mm -hmm. to his previous crypto economics episode, which really focused more on the cryptography side of crypto mm -hmm. economics and was insanely bullish for all sorts of interesting technical reasons. I learned you know, so much during that episode, but this is almost the follow-up sister episode where we're actually talking mm -hmm. about the economic piece, the importance mm -hmm. of ether as an asset in the future. Justin Drake calls this ultrasound money. David, why should folks be excited about ultrasound money? There is, I think that Ethereum history will be divided amongst many other ways to divide up something, but in, in one way, this way, Ethereum history will be before this episode drops and then it will be different after <laughs> oh this episode God, drops. Wow, that's hype, This dude. is the best podcast. <laughs> You're not overselling it? I'm not overselling it. This is the best podcast that I think has come out of the Bankless podcast ever so far. And you're, you're totally right. There's the economic side, the cryptography side, and then there's or, and there's the cryptography side, and then there's the economic side in crypto economics. Uh, and Justin Drake has figured out the best meme for Ether, the asset, ever. And I think it will be the meme that lasts until the end of time. Wait, wait, uh, better than triple point asset? Better than triple point asset, I'm sorry to say. Mm -hmm. This is uh, you, you really hyping this up, David. I like I just recorded it, but you listened to it and you edited mm -hmm. it, so you mm -hmm. got some extra hours, and you're you're still feeling like this is going to be a fantastic yep. episode coming away from this, the number one episode. Yeah, this is this this episode will pivot the trajectory of Ethereum for the rest of time. Oh my God! All right, yep. well it, now I want to listen to this episode, <laughs> and see, see how good it is. It comes next Monday, guys. So of mm -hmm. course, and you get that early early release date if you are a Bankless Premium subscriber. So you can find mm -hmm. out how to su subscribe, be a Bankless Premium member by clicking the link in the show notes. All right, David, let's start with the question I ask you every single state of the nation. What is the state of the nation today, sir? The state of the nation is reflecting. We are reflecting as to all of the crazy stuff that has happened over the last weeks and months, particularly with NFTs. Every time some new wave comes in Ethereum, it's always an experimental wave. DeFi summer, massive summer-long experiment in token issuance and yield and protocol design. And now, most more recently, in the last two months, we've had a new wave of NFTs, which have also been experiments. No one knows what they're doing in DeFi. No one knows what they're doing in Ethereum. We're all figuring it out together. And now that this NFT mania has kind of gone on for two months now, um, I'm actually going to ask Andrew if he actually does agree that this is a mania. Maybe that's not the right word, but a lot of experiments have happened in the last two months. Now it's time to reflect. What have we learned? Where has the trajectory gone differently than we expected or the same that we expected? We're just integrating new information. We are reflecting on the recent experiments of NFTs. That's a, yeah, well-timed episode, I think, because this is all going to be about sort of a summary of the capturing the state of NFTs today with Andrew. And we'll get to that in a second. One last thing before we cut to sponsors is Coindesk is having a consensus event. That is their annual conference in May. You've got like 11 hours, I think, from, from the time that we're recording, we're going live to get that at early bird discount. Mm -hmm. Ray Dalio will be there. Why is Ray Dalio there? Good why question. Is Ray Dalio there? Is he interested in crypto? Hasn't been in the past, but why is he right. attending a crypto conference? Mm -hmm. I'm definitely not going to miss that event. So if you want it at a discount, use the bankless code, uh, click the link in your show notes. With that, David, we should thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. 
Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum and just recently released Aave version 2, which has a ton of cool new features that makes using Aave even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi, Money Legos, Yield, and Composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can deposit in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have deposited collateral. Here you can see me getting a 200 USDC loan against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens and ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock that interest rate in permanently. One of Aave's V2 features is the ability to swap collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. Aave does all of this for you all in one seamless transaction, so you don't have to repay loans in order to change the collateral you have backing them. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. If you are looking for a product that connects your fiat bank account with DeFi tokens and products, you need to download the Dharma mobile app. Dharma is a non-custodial smart contract wallet and comes with a bridge that connects you right into your bank account. Dharma is the fastest and most efficient wallet between your fiat in your bank account and any token on Uniswap or even any vault in Yearn. With Dharma, you can get over $25,000 per week into the DeFi universe, and you can do it non-custodially. If you or anyone you know is hot on DeFi and you're trying to get your money into a DeFi investment, Dharma is the place to go. Signing up and going through KYC is an absolute breeze. It took me just under three minutes, and after signing into my bank account via Plaid, I am now just one transaction away from any token that Uniswap has to offer. Go to www.dharma.io, that's D-H-A-R-M-A dot download the Dharma app, and get yourself unbanked today. Guys, we are back with the State of NFTs episode with Andrew Steinwald, the perfect guest to have this episode with. He is an investor at the uh, Sefermion Fund. Also, he publishes the Metaverse, uh, which is one of my favorite newsletters that cover the NFT space. It's, I've absolutely been dropping Alpha since the early days. Uh, he's also podcast episode um, leader on Zima Red. Actually, Zima Red is the name of your newsletter, Andrew. Sorry, not it's nice. about the metaverse, I should say. Um, Andrew, it is so awesome to have you. It's been a few months, actually, but like the first episode we had you on, we wanted you to articulate the, the bull case for uh, NFTs, and that was back in September. Well, my friend, it seems like we are in a bull market for NFTs. Do you feel sort of validated with your, your NFT thesis? Because you were talking about NFTs before they were a thing, before they were cool, before they were doing $70 million art piece sales. Uh, how are you feeling right now? Do you feel validated? Yeah, so uh, I'm feeling, personally, I feel a bit weak because I just had a surgery la uh, last Wednesday. So that's why my voice, I you know, seem a bit pale and weak. But uh, besides that, in terms of like mentally, I'm on top of the world. I think it's incredible that um, to see the thesis play out in real time is, is amazing. And to kind of be writing about this and talking about it for quite some time now and to see it catch on to the wider mainstream audience is super, super amazing. I, I think it's incredible that um, people are getting, it's like, a, it's almost like a Trojan horse for crypto because people are like, oh, I, I like art. I like gaming. I like collectibles, whatever. And those kind of simple use cases can bring people into crypto so they can learn about Bitcoin. They can learn about Ethereum. They can learn about DeFi. 
and uh, then they get access to this wider world that is just so revolutionary. So um, it's 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 awesome to be honest. It's very busy, um, but no, I, I'm I'm very happy to see it play out. And I still think um, yes, we are in a frenzied period right now. But I still think that this is like just like DeFi. We are in the very 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 early stages of this. That's going to be a multi-year kind of decade, multi-decade kind of uh, thesis play out for for this, this uh, asset class. Uh, Andrew, can I share something with you? This is um, something I, I saw on Twitter just uh, this past weekend. This is search oh, terms for NFTs, crazy. DeFi, and ETH. Uh, NFTs in wow. blue. And what, what you're seeing, if, if you guys are listening to the podcast, can't see this on YouTube, is NFTs are absolutely like, <laughs> like far higher uh, in terms of search terms than both DeFi and ETH at this point. And it looks like that that trend started happening earlier this year. But when you're just talking about this is this is uh, mainstream's way to get access into crypto. It's kind of a gateway into crypto. This is the data that that we see. It's like playing out. People are searching for NFTs before they know anything about DeFi, before they know anything about Ethereum or the underlying platform that's on, before they know anything about crypto. The thesis is playing out marvelous, marvelously. Are you surprised at how quickly this happened? I know you've been bullish on NFTs. We had a conversation. You said this would be bigger than DeFi. This would be a trillion dollar plus market, right? We had that conversation in September, but you didn't. I don't think you put a timeline on it. Are, are you surprised that this happened so quickly? Yeah, you know, a hundred percent. Like in no way did I anticipate Mark Cuban and Chamath to be going on CNBC <laughs> and Bloomberg talking about NFTs in 2021. I, I figured that, that would happen in like 2024 or three, four years down the, down the line. Um, but like it, it has blown all my expectations uh, completely out of the water from where we are today. Like when I first set up uh, the fund, um, it's a fund f- fully focused on NFTs. At, we were at one to two million dollars in monthly trade volumes, right? Um, and two million dollars was a big, it was, it was a major month for us. And then, you know, to fast forward to today, um, to see in February we had 175 million dollars in one month. That is like, no, nowhere on the horizon. I thought it was going to take years. Okay, give us those numbers again. Sorry, we were uh, dealing with an audio. So, Sorry. 175 million this month, is that what you said? So, in February, the, the monthly trade volume was 175 million. When I first started, which was, you know, September of 2019, so it was kind of a while back, but one to $2 million per month. But even in August of 2020, so pretty, pretty you know, pretty recently, it was $2.5 million per month was like the trade volume we were looking at. So, it just, you know, the past December, January, February, it's just been wild. How do you account for this growth? Like what's happening? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a, a layers of different factors. But first of all, traditional finance, we're in a massive bull cycle, right? You know, stocks are all all-time highs. Uh, crypto, we're in a massive bull cycle. Crypto's at all-time highs. Um, the crypto wealthy, they're not really, they're, you know, if they want to offload their ETH or BTC position well, well within the money, they're not thinking, okay, I'm going to go buy a Rolex and buy a house. Like they probably already have those things. They're like, I'm going to go flex and I want to buy a punk, you know, a crypto punk. I'm going to change my avatar to a crypto punk. And, um, you know, I, like I wrote, like I wrote for you guys, it's like the new Rolex is like a crypto punk. And uh, um, I think that to have these assets that are part status symbol and part financial asset is really, really appealing to a lot of people. And then, so that's kind of like macro and, and crypto micro, but then also looking at uh, the use cases in general, they're super appealing to everyone. So, you know, and I always do like the mom test. So I'm always like, Hey mom, like, I've been talking to her about Bitcoin since like 2013. She's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, but I say, hey, mom, I can, I can play a video game. I can earn money. Or 
mom, I, there's these collectible cards and they're like on the internet and you can trade them and make money and stuff like that. And she's like, oh, okay. Like I, I get that. It's understandable. Like there's art and it's online. It's digital. Right. And she's like, I, I get that. So I think the use cases are so appealing towards a broader audience, not just this kind of uh, crypto native crowd, which is really important for, for bringing on more people. Mom does not care about Austrian economics. If I know one thing about mom or or monetary theory, eyes glaze over, right? But definitely the NFT use case with with artists that uh, mainstream knows in real life, this is appealing. Um, but you mentioned something in there about kind of the the status symbol and the the newly crypto wealthy. Is, is that are those the folks that are buying these like Beeples for for seventy million dollars and and these crypto punks and Jack Dorsey's you know was a two point five million dollar uh, tweet as an NFT. Is it, is it, is this coming from inside of crypto? All of this, all of this funding, all of this cash, is that where it's coming from? Or some also coming from outside? Definitely the, the curators and the, um, the, the, the artists and the creators are coming from outside crypto. That much is clear to see, but the demand, is that still mostly inside of crypto? Yeah. So there's certain levels. So, so in the higher end, you're talking in the hundreds of thousands to millions, that buy range or that price range, it's mostly crypto natives. And when you're talking the, the lower range, you know, anywhere from like 20 bucks to, you know, a couple thousand, that's more the kind of the newer people that don't have exposure. Um, and what, what's interesting is that as these people, basically the more time you get involved in the space, the higher your conviction, that's pretty much the same as in crypto. And, um, and then you start to put down, you know, higher dollar amounts. So maybe the new person starts with NBA top shot and they spend 200 bucks on some packs and they get excited and maybe they can sell those for like a thousand dollars, let's say. And they're like, oh, what else is in this ecosystem? They go to OpenSea, they check out like CryptoPunks, they check out all this kind of stuff. And then they get just farther along the rabbit hole and eventually end up like, you know, farming like whatever DeFi protocol, like a couple of months down the line. So um, yeah, it's, it, that, that's the progression that I, that I kind of see happening. And in terms of the buyers, that's kind of how I bifurcate them now. It's like crypto, uh, you know, wealthy are the high dollar amounts. And then the, the new people are just kind of dipping their toes in now, but getting involved quite quickly. So Andrew, you've uh, had your own mental models about how this NFT space will develop and progress. Um, and I want to get your gut take on the, the last two to three months of NFT progression and ask you if that if did that, what is, has what's happened in the last two to three months matched what you predicted would happen or, or also what has really kind of changed the game or what was uh, really something that's out of the left field that you didn't see coming. So, so what, what did, what would you say that you got right and you predicted and what was out of left field or out of the blue or something that you didn't predict? Okay. So what I think I got correct was that the reasons behind people getting involved in this market were accurate. Um, they're multifaceted because NFTs themselves are quite a diverse market. You, know, you have collectibles, game assets, virtual land, art, uh, other, which is like all these other different categories. Um, so you can be a gamer, you can be a, a collector, you can be an artist, like whatever. There's all these different appealing reasons to get involved. And so that's been correct in the sense that um, it's very multifaceted and uh, yeah, it, it just goes back to being appealing to a, a broader audience versus um, crypto, which is often more focused on, you know, financial related applications or like trading or, you know, purely kind of making money, which like an artist of course wants to make money, but I don't see them like necessarily diving into DeFi head first. I think they're going to get there, but it's going to take some time. Um, okay. So, and then what I got completely wrong was the time frame on which this would happen. I think like you guys asked me in your podcast, I think it said, uh, you know, how long will it take to reach a trillion dollar market? I think I said 10 years. Yeah. You then, did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, and like, I, I really did believe, I know I was like, okay, maybe it's a little bit 
little bit too long, but probably right. And now it's like, you know, the total lifetime trade volume, I think yesterday was at 450 mil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 430 mil. Um, so, you know, that's just, that's just crazy. Right. Um, so trends happen. So these are like monetizable memes, essentially every single NFT is like, has some sort of virality or can have some sort of virality to it. And because it's on the internet and memeable and has a financial aspect to it, these things can grow way crazier than I anticipated. And uh, which is both good and bad. I think it's good in the sense that um, it'll help the, the wider adoption of the space, but it's also not great in the sense that I don't want people to look at NFTs as purely financial assets because they're not. I think people, you know, should be, if they want to buy a piece of art, they should truly love the art. If they want to buy a collectible, they should truly love, you know, the soccer player that they're buying the collectible from or whatever, right? Um, I don't want them, I don't want this to just be a pure financial game uh, because if that's the case, then that's, that's not really fulfilling the mission of, of the NFT space. Andrew, there may be more to dig into here, but I, I just want to ask kind of your, your gut take. So uh, David in the intro used the term mania and then he corrected himself and it was like, well, you know, I, I wonder if Andrew would characterize what's going on as a mania. That's, that's what I'm curious about too. Would you characterize what's going on right now in the NFT world as a, as a mania? Yeah, I think that it's, it's highly speculative right now. Um, but I think with every new technological paradigm, we've seen this with crypto, we've seen this with DeFi, we've seen this with dot-com bubble. Um, speculative cycles are completely normal and, and actually end up being kind of healthy for an emergent technologies because they bring in capital, they bring in talent, they bring in all this kind of added oomph to, to this space and make it really accelerate um, a couple of years ahead of where it probably would have been normally. So I think that um, we are definitely in a mania, but um, that being said, I think that that's totally normal and okay. And, um, and really, uh, yeah, I, we, we've seen it happen before and it'll, it'll happen again in some other new thing, whenever that, that might happen. Um, and I think, I think it's okay. I think overall, um, yeah. So I, I, will, I will kind of step back slightly. One thing I don't like is that low effort assets being produced by people that have learned about the space like yesterday. Um, right. and, and we see that a lot from famous people. And I understand, like, if you're the biggest fan of, like, Rob Gronkowski, then totally, like, you can go splurge on the stuff. But, like, you need to be thinking longer term. And, and I get it's a, If it's his first NFT and you just love the guy, then, like, totally go at it. But, like, I just don't – right now, you know, like, Paris Hilton just started following me on Twitter, right? So it's like, it's like you know, sure, she's awesome, whatever. But, like, I'm concerned about what is what is her what are her right. intentions in the space. I feel like uh, right. they're thinking more short term cash grab. Not versus to call anyone long-term. out, Andrew, but like Lindsay Lohan, I don't know. Yeah, putting the most effort into uh, <laughs> the NFT shopping here. Did you or see Zero XB behind them? Zero XB one bought her NFT for something like thirty ether and burned it, and just like sent it right to the burn address. So, um, you know that kind of that kind of like kind of funny. <laughs> I think it's it's crazy, like the most absurd move ever. But um, I respect it a little bit. Uh, but like, <laughs> that's, that's what like, we kind of feel about it. Like we don't want these movie stars just coming in right. and making NFTs and making all this money. We want crypto natives, people that have been in the space for right. a while that truly care and know about the space and, and, and you know, have the same ideals and values as us to make stuff and then be successful. That, that, that's what I want. I know a lot of other people want that as well. Because these people's fans, like Rob Gronkowski, his fans aren't crypto people. His fans are NFL consumers, right? And so to the typical NFL consumer, when they see something new that they didn't know existed before, they're like, oh, this is a new thing that I didn't know existed before. Let Mm -hmm. me get in on this. Not realizing that they're actually getting in on an experiment, right? Not actually realizing that this is something not just new to them, but new to the whole entire world that we are all trying to figure out 
together. And just because Rob Gronkowski is issuing an NFT doesn't mean that it is a finished product, right? Or even the best product that it could be. People, people aren't used to like this frontier that is crypto. And so they are thinking perhaps that it's more legitimate than it actually is, or they just don't really know what they're getting into. Yeah, I, I think if you're a fan of him, or if you think that if you're confident that, you know, you'll make money on an asset, then sure, like it's your money, you go, go do whatever you want. Right. But um, yeah, it just really like, I, I want to see a follow through from ideally, if Gronkowski was like, hey, guys, like, I'm going to now start my own NFT series. And this is good, blah, blah, blah. And like, really put some, you know, effort, like, you know, it, not even money wise, just like thought wise into what he was doing, then that I'd be like, great, he's, that's awesome. I'm happy. Um, but again, I just, I just think about are you happy holding on to an asset, uh, this, this specific NFT, two to three years down the line? And I do think, obviously, I'm very biased, but NFTs are going to be massive. So in theory, uh, Rob, Rob Gronkowski's first NFT would have some sort of value. But what about his second or his third or his fourth? You know, it's like yeah. those, it's like, who knows? And you know, the difference, Andrew, is like when, um, when, when Blau was on our podcast, and he's kind of been in this from the early days, and he was, he was talking about issuing his own NFTs. And then he was listing out all of the various ways he was going to add value to the purchasers of those NFTs. And he went through and he, he knew many of these, um, the, the folks who bought his NFT by name. He's talking about like backstage access, collaborations mm -hmm. with him, right? It was very clear that he was looking to build a community and kind of grow from, from there. And I don't get that sense from um, some of the other, you know, creators of NFTs who are, who are entering, um, you know, in a less intentional way. Uh, that, that I think if you guys listen to the, uh, listen to the Blau conversation, you'll, you'll definitely see the difference there. And in any mania, you know, people buy at the top, like they buy at right. the wrong point in time. And uh, so lots of, Lots of wealth can be made or at the late stages of mania lost. And I wanted to ask about that, Andrew. So if we are in some kind of a mania, the question is always like, well, you know, what stage of the mania are we in and how long right. will it last? Do you have any takes on that? Yeah, so I could be completely incorrect because if I could call the tops and bottoms of markets, I would be like a billionaire. But right. um, so I think that NFTs will be highly correlated with the broader crypto markets because a lot of these assets are den denominated in Ether. So, um, yeah, I, I really think it's dependent on Bitcoin and Ethereum and what they do. Um, and also what's one interesting fact about NFTs is that they're, you know, pretty illiquid comparatively to regular crypto. And so it's, it's, it's easy to form bubbles. It's hard to pop the bubbles. It's easy because there's such a limited supply and these are unique goods. So if someone, you know, someone famous or some really cool product launches with like a hundred NFTs, there's a thousand buyers, like the prices can get really crazy quite quickly. And then on the other hand, if you want to quickly exit your position, it's very difficult because these are not, you know, you can't just go on Uniswap or some exchange right. and get market sell. And so um, that's one very interesting aspect. And I kind of liken it to the financial crisis of 07, 08, where, you know, real estate prices had like pretty much only gone up ever since then and took a massive macro event in order to reduce the home prices across the board because these assets are less liquid. And in my opinion, that's kind of how I see NFTs playing out in the short, in, you know, in this kind of cycle, where until crypto kind of has some major correction, I don't see the NFT mania or hype cycle being diminished uh, by that much. I think it's going to take a large macro event in order to kind of dampen dampen the spirits and dampen the dampen the fun. So I so guess back take. to the question of how long uh, will the crypto uh, <laughs> market cycle last, right? Which is which is kind of the other speculative point here. Yeah. Well, what do you, what do you guys think on that? I I have I have a guess, but what do you guys think? 
Nine months. Nine months. <laughs> oh, wow. That's I think that's accurate. fast. I think that's fast. Nine months to a year. David's probably. I, I'm, I'm nine to nine to 18 or nine. Yeah. Nine to 18 months. Oof, uh, I'm shorter than both you guys. What, what, what is oh, your reasoning? Really? This will four year cycles plus a little bit more because of lengthening cycles. And that's yeah. like kind of the, just the napkin math that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that quote unquote, this time is different in the sense that like, this is crypto's mainstreaming cycle. And so I am inclined to extend how long this cycle goes. Mm-hmm. You know, Bitcoin can keep on pumping as long as the Fed keeps on printing, right? And so kind of, it's like, no, it's actually not crypto cycles. It's it's uh, modern monetary policy. Uh, it's up to, up, up to them to determine how long this cycle goes. And I think that that could make it go for a lot longer than previous cycles. My, my, my framing is like um, 2021 is, is uh, 2017, right? And so we're in March of 2017 and it's going to play out roughly similar. So nine months on us, um, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less. Yeah, I could go with David's estimate. Um, yeah, what's your take? So you think it would be shorter, Andrew? Yeah, I, I think you guys both have, have very sound and logical reasons for your estimates. M- mine is, is pretty similar in the sense but I just think it's going to be shorter, but I I'm always very optimistic and at the same time, very pessimistic. It's very weird. It's always like com- competing forces, but I, I think it's going to be six months roughly um, just because the pace of the acceleration has been faster than what I thought. Um, but then, but then going back to uh, 2017, when we were in April of 2017, I thought that I was like, Oh my gosh, we are in the biggest bull market <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. Cause I was like, I bought a three and now it's going crazy. Like, you know, it's like, um, so yeah, and I don't know. These things always go way harder and faster than than I thought than I you know think. And then also, David, you mentioned uh, the Fed and the correlation between you know, like like how can Bitcoin or or Ethereum have a large correction if the Fed's printing at every single like hiccup the traditional market ha- does? Yeah, it's 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 going to be really interesting to play out. Like we've never had a more bullish setup for cryptocurrencies ever. So right. it's we'll see. I also feel like there's this the, there's this element of of uh, differences this market cycle too. It's like DeFi already had a DeFi summer, right? And, and it had that lasted three, four months mm-hmm. and now it's kind of recovering. This could be at, like NFTs sort of DeFi summer event right. and then that could cool down, but it could could like the the crypto bull market writ large could continue even after these these sub sort of markets, um, which is you know interesting to observe. I had one last question on on kind of mania. Um, what can we learn from the previous? Because NFTs did have sort of a, a mania type event, like a micro mania, if you will, in 2017. And I'm curious what we can learn from the projects there. So with CryptoKitties, which uh, almost marked the top of the last mania. And we had um, assets like um, like CryptoPunks, for instance, right? Um, and then we had all of these other assets that probably no one, no one even remembers in the NFT side of things. And it seems to be the case that, that some of these things died away while others um, persisted and in fact became more valuable this, this cycle. At least uh, CryptoPunks certainly did. I'm not sure if CryptoKitties has recovered. Is there anything we can glean from the last market cycle and, and kind of fit into this market cycle? So if people are buying... NFTs, for example, and they're high quality NFTs, uh, even if there is some sort of crash in the NFT market, is there some historical case for, for holding for the long run until the next time around when, when these things uh, pump in the next cycle? Yeah, I think you can just look at the projects like that were around in 2017, early 2018. Um, you know, let's, let's go with uh, Decentraland, uh, CryptoVoxels, uh, uh, CryptoKitties, CryptoPunks, et cetera. Um, these, these are all high quality projects with motivated people behind them and well thought out 
kind of narratives and, and kind of uh, token economics for in case of CryptoPunks and stuff like that. And you can see that they are now, you know, the top projects in the space now. Um, CryptoKitties is, is obviously not the main focus of Dapper anymore. Now they're focusing on their kind of flow and, and top shot and whatnot, and they're killing it. But, um, but you, you can still see CryptoKitties have a ton of kind of collectible value still. And so I think it just proves that if you are a team building in the NFT space and you are thoughtful and you're thinking long-term, you can build kind of the next CryptoKitties or the next CryptoPunks or, or whatever. Um, and, but, but you have to do it in the right way. You have to be you know, playing long-term games with long-term people. Like that's like the famous quote. And that is a thousand percent true in the NFT space where like narrative and story uh, play such a, such a large role because these assets are subjective in value. A lot of them are versus um, something like DeFi, which you can actually kind of value on like a, a, a legitimate, not, not legitimate, but more accurate basis than you can like a piece of art, right? Um, so I think it goes back to just being thoughtful about what you're creating and thinking in terms of years and not months. There's a, a couple subjects that you brought up just there that I want to get into. I, I do want to get into the subject of CryptoPunks and the, the question around the CryptoPunks premium. Does it exist or does it not? And I also want to get into the subject matter around flow, which brings up to the question of what really is an NFT? Um, so those are, those are two really awesome subjects. We're going to get to those right after we get back from a quick break to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Guys, we've entered a bull market. Now is the time to start building your crypto empire, and you should do it on Gemini. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. It's available in 50 countries, supports more than 30 crypto assets, including DeFi tokens like DAI, Aave, Uni, and YFI. I love their DeFi token support. You can buy crypto safely and securely on Gemini's mobile app or their exchange. You can know that your assets are protected with industry-leading security. And they're not only protected, they're also insured. I've been a loyal Gemini user since 2016. The Winklevoss twins are the founders. They've been on the podcast. They believe in the bankless vision. They are helping to onboard the world. So get ready for the bull market. Open a free account in less than three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless and get $15 after you trade $100 or more within the first 30 days. That's gemini.com slash go bankless. If you want to live a bankless life, you need to get a Monolith DeFi Visa card. Monolith is both a one-two punch of an Ethereum smart contract wallet, as well as an accompanying Visa card that lets you spend the money that you have in your Ethereum wallet wherever Visa is accepted. It's really a fantastic tool that lets you use Ethereum for what it does best, which is holding and managing your financial assets, but also keeps you connected to the rest of the world's payment rails. Monolith also offers on-ramp services for getting your fiat money into the world of DeFi. So it's trivial to top up your Monolith card if ever you need to, and your deposited money goes straight into your non-custodial wallet. So your money is never held by a centralized intermediary because your Monolith wallet is native to Ethereum. Monolith helps you transcend both the legacy and the crypto worlds because the money that you hold in your Monolith wallet has the power of DeFi behind it. Swapping assets on Uniswap or earning yield in DeFi is at your fingertips. But with Monolith, so are the groceries at your grocery store or the coffee at your coffee shop. Go to monolith.xyz to sign up and get your Monolith Visa card today. 
And we're back with Andrew Steinwald. Andrew, I want to start the conversation here with, with CryptoPunks because I think there can be a claim made about CryptoPunks and how it kind of stands out from the crowd uh, and mainly on the nature of its genesis, which kind of reminds me, not, not perfectly, but of Bitcoin's genesis, right? Like no one knew uh, CryptoPunks were going to become this valuable. No one knew that they were that special. There was this kind of credible neutrality about its genesis. And there's been an, even content written about uh, CryptoPunks, uh, talking about the CryptoPunk investment thesis, which really is makes CryptoPunks stand out. So do you agree that CryptoPunks are unique from other NFTs? And if you do, what would the, the features of CryptoPunks really, um, wh why do CryptoPunks really stand out from the crowd? Yeah. Okay. So I think CryptoPunks is a collectible and the value drivers around collectibles is all about the narrative, the story around the assets. Mm -hmm. And CryptoPunks have a great story. They were, you know, the first NFTs on Ethereum, but Recently, you know, Ethereum just kind of came out and said, no, we were on mainnet in 2015. So there's kind of some debate on that, to, like just happened the past week. But, you know, they're the first NFTs on Ethereum. Um, they're made by, you know, two geniuses in Brooklyn. Uh, they had a fair launch where, meaning that the developers kept a thought, there's total 10,000 of them only. So a hard cap supply. The developers had a fair, they did a fair launch, meaning that they kept a thousand for themselves. 9,000 were, were actually claimable for free, just by anyone. Um, so I think, all these different factors kind of appeal to uh, especially like kind of Bitcoiners and people within crypto because they're like, oh, this is kind of like Bitcoin-esque in its creation and launch. Um, therefore, you know, I, th I think it's pretty, pr pretty great, great, uh, great buy. Um, I'm going to basically make a play on a th uh, NFTs on Ethereum. Uh, you know, basically, if you think NFTs on Ethereum are going to be big and popular, then I think CryptoPunks make a ton of sense. That being said, like that being first is very, very important in collectibles and just like the storyline. And so if, with Ethereum popping up, which is like this, like hex, it's like this, like 3D, or no, it's like 2D world with like these hexes and uh, you, you can actually like acquire these different tokens for like one Ether each. And anyways, um, now, now that's, as, not, that, that, that for me is like kind of throws a lot of things in question because it's like, okay, well, if they weren't really the first, um, if, if now Ethereum is the first, like what does that do to the storyline? But I still think right. that um, the, the story is still in the narrative is still very strong with CryptoPunks. Therefore, I, I do see them occurring. Uh, more value in the future. I, I just think that there's only 10,000 of them. And there's a lot of people looking crypto that want them. They turn into status you know, symbols. So do you know what listening to you guys describe this is like, it, it, it goes back to one of the earlier points you're making, Andrew, how this is so, so much of this is just pure meme investing. Like mm -hmm. the, the way you just described the narrative here, that is the narrative to invest in. And when you're buying a crypto punk, you're, you're, in, you're investing in like whether that, that, that meme has enough um, sticking power, uh, virality, um, like enough substance to actually propagate and be believed by a greater number of people. And like, if it does, then you want to buy and hold. And if it, if it doesn't, then it's a, it's a bad investment. This is like pure meme investing mm -hmm. in a way, even that like buying ether or buying Bitcoin is not because at least on the other side of this, I suppose with Bitcoin and ether, you, you get kind of liquidity, whereas like the meme reinforces liquidity, and liquidity actually has value because that's a you know most saleable good thing. It has a monetary premium in and of itself. Is 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 that what we're doing here with these collectibles NFTs? Is it basically like we're directly investing in memes here? Yeah, well, I would argue that Bitcoin's like even more of a meme investment because it's literally like they're just saying like, hey, this thing has value. You can't see it. There's no visual aspect to it, so it's even lesser than punks. And, uh, and it, it just like has value because we think it is value, blah, blah, blah. And so that's like the ultimate meme. Ethereum, I, I'd argue a little bit against that in the sense that Ethereum is highly functional and there's so many things you can do and build on top of it. So 
Um, I kind of separate that a little bit, but still, you know, there's a large amount of like meme involved in that. Um, and then uh, I think NFTs are, I think I mentioned it before, like monetizable memes um, where, yeah, it's just like, they're this almost new form of social media in the sense that um, social media today is used for like marketing purposes and marketing yourself. You, you show off your car, show off your steak dinner, you show off your traveling to like this island resort or whatever, and you're taking stories, Instagram stories and whatever. And you're basically just like marketing and you're kind of like showing off and you're implying like, I'm so wealthy or I'm so cool, whatever. And with, with NFTs, it's just taking that to like the level 10 because you're, you're buying some good that is a quasi financial asset, but also at the same time, it has some sort of status. I think Gabby Dizon called NFTs like store of status assets where you can like buy this punk and it like retains a certain amount of status. And it just so happens to be valuable because other people think it's valuable. So it's like, there's all these weird, interesting, interesting dynamics that just make um, NFTs yeah, monetizable memes, which in some sense is like this next evolution in social media. Because um, it, it's just like cutting to the chase. Instead of implying I'm so cool and wealthy, it's just like, hey, look, you see on the blockchain, I've spent this much and um, I have these, 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 these NFTs, therefore I'm cool, something like that. So um, yeah, really, really interesting dynamics that are very like human mixed with like, like qualitative and quantitative, which I think is very, very appealing and, and interesting. I think what also has set the CryptoPunks apart from the rest of NFT, NFTs is that they have this really high floor price and that starts to give it this value that other NFTs don't have, where the, the, one of the reasons why this NFT mania or why Beeple is selling his stuff for $69 million is because these things, things are super illiquid. But when CryptoPunks have a, such a high floor, floor price, they are actually turning that on its head because CryptoPunks are extremely liquid. And they are these NFTs that are that have this high floor price, which means that there's always this guarantee, there's always a, there's always going to be a buyer where there isn't always going to be a buyer for like these more unique one of one NFTs. And I think that's kind of like how you kind of know your NFT has or NFT set or collection or whatever CryptoPunks are has really hit escape velocity is that you know, NFTs can be extremely high, highly valued if the if you find the right buyer, but NFTs that have hit escape velocity will always have a buyer no matter what. And I think that's what's unique and sets CryptoPunks apart from the rest. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. Secondary market liquidity is like one of the biggest indicating factors on a on a NFT success, 100%. Because and that's also why like myself personally and as a fund, like I don't really get involved too deeply in the art space because as you mentioned, like. To find a one of a one of one buyer for one specific piece of art is quite difficult. But in something like CryptoPunks, where you know it's it's essentially like always liquid. If you sell at a low enough price, people are going to buy it for sure. Um, you might not make money on that, but that's just kind of a separate separate issue. But um, yeah, seeing the secondary market liquidity can tell you like a lot about a project. It's 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 crazy to see because we talk about sort of propagation, how early that this might be, but um, basically, if we if we look at something like CryptoPunks, right, that appeals to a small, relatively small, you know, geek crypto native type demographic. But, but the reality is this usage of memes as monetary um, and status symbols to, to the world, like every single subculture is going to discover this, right? Like there's how many subcultures left have not even put a toe into NFTs as a social status symbol, right? Like almost all of them. Like we have, yeah, there's 99%, 99%, I would say, of, of the rest of these different communities and subcultures um, that uh, that will come to this and, and discover it in the way that kind of the geeks who are early have. And 
you know, maybe CryptoPunks appeals to some of them, but probably not. They'll have their own things that they will memeify and NFTify as a result. Yeah, yeah, no, a thousand percent. Like that's especially true with collectibles and art. I think that those are non-functional NFTs. So the narrative, the meme, the story is the driving force factor there. And then on the functional side, which is more of like virtual land or game assets, the the, the value and kind of the the usability of these things is is more uh, looked at. In, in, basically, the value is a function of of the usability and, and the utility of the asset. So like, um, if like you know, my, my sword does ten damage, your sword does hundred damage. Your sword should be more valuable in theory. Uh, the, or a virtual land parcel. It's like you, you actually want to be able to build something on that piece of piece of land and experience that virtual world or whatever. So on on the functional side, there's way more around the assets than just the meme. It's way more like, okay, does this actually make quantitative sense? And then on the, the non-functional side, it's mostly all about qualitative and, and other kind of subjective factors. So um, yeah, it really depends on what type of NFTs you're looking at. But 100%, you're correct. Like every community. Uh, on the internet, even even off the internet, that comes on the internet will have their own kind of weird NFT memes and all sorts of interesting stuff. Can you tell us about some cool projects then, Andrew? Right. So I know you're you're really big into kind of this idea of um, everything's moving into the metaverse. This this whole new digital frontier, essentially. Um, tell us some projects that you're excited about. People have heard of CryptoPunks. People have heard of of Beeple. What's kind of up and coming and on your radar right now? Yeah. So in terms of up and coming, there's like just a, a rush of really, really incredible developers, creatives, um, you know, kind of founders that are now making companies that are focusing on the NFT sector, which is amazing. And I'm really happy for that. I think um, that's kind of what, you know, this bubble is doing is make people look at the space more closely and, and decide, hey, you know what? I'm going to leave my job at like Google or whatever, and I'm going to dive into the space full time, which is, that's great for us. Um, so those are all up and coming things. And they range from like, new art platforms to new, new games, new, this new, like, like super diverse. And then I think the stuff that's great today is really, um, a lot of, a lot of things that, uh, either ha- have been around for quite some time and have existing like rabid communities around them. You can always count on that. Um, and then also even newer projects that have quickly grown communities that are very fanatical themselves. And, and so, you know, the, the, the connecting kind of theme here is that the community is such a driving force for a lot of these projects because, and it's the same like as in traditional crypto and DeFi, um, you know, Hashmax, for example, that launched what, like a month or two ago. And the Hashmax community is like really, really great. They're really smart. They're always chatting about the cool like codes and weird stuff that's going on in the background of your, of your Hashmax because each one is like, has a message or a lot of them have messages and stuff like that. Um, and so that's, that's, that's something to, to really kind of think about is you want to make uh, a project that has, if it's a collectible side, so not much functionality, you want to make something that's a deep experience and um, not just surface level. And then on the functional side, you want to create a great experience around the NFT. So um, instead of making the NFT very deep on the non-functional, the functional, it's like you want to make uh, sure this NFT is a sword, but the experience around uh, using that asset is very, very exciting. So in terms of specifics, uh, virtual land platforms, sandbox, crypto voxels, Decentra, Insomnium, all great. Um, in terms of collectibles, uh, CryptoPunks, Autoglyphs, um, uh, hash masks, uh, game assets. We have like gaming, we have Axie, so rare, which I kind of count as, as kind of gaming and then art. I mean, there's just like so many amazing art projects. I, the one that I'm really excited about recently is art blocks, which is like generative art on Ethereum. I think that that's like a super cool concept and, and it's kind of opening the doors for a lot of generative artists who, who've never been able to monetize quite effectively. And, um, and yeah, anyways, they're, they're just like 
every day there's a cool new experiment or new product being launched. And, and uh, that's so much different than the existing structures that it's, it's, it just, it's very, very exciting. And it shows me, okay, wow, this is going to be even more diverse than these kind of four categories. I fuck with them. And there's going to be, you know, 10 categories in the future. So yeah, it's, it bodes well for the space. How do you find these things, Andrew? Oh man. So DMs, a lot of people just DM me, uh, what they're working on, cool things like that. Intros from friends, uh, discords, uh, people always say like, what is the resource that you can go to, to start like learning or finding out about this stuff. And, and there really isn't one. I wish there was, but it's very scattered right now. And a lot of it is network driven. So it's like, Hey, this guy knows this guy who knows this guy and blah, blah, blah. Uh, or, or just random. Like I'll just get a DM and they're like, Hey, I'm working on this thing. I'm like, okay, cool. Um, so like, and how do you know it's good if you receive a, a rando DM? Oh, right. So if there isn't one single source, what that means is the source is your brain, which means you need to do, be doing vetting. How do you do, how do you vet and how do you analyze and how do you de de uh, determine what's real and what's noise? Yeah. So it's really tough because it requires a lot of time, but really if let's say someone DMs me a project, I'll say, Hey, send me over like a deck, send me over some website, some information. Uh, if it looks interesting, I'll say, okay, great. Let's jump on a call. And uh, then from there, if, if you really want to kind of go forward with the investment, I just try to distill everything down to its fundamentals. So the team, the product, the token economics, the community, the market, the data, the risks, and you assess every project on those core fundamentals. And if it passes muster, you say, okay, great. This is a, this is a wonderful product. It fundamentally fits you know, our, our values and, and what we think is great. So then you move on to, okay, we're, we're going to make an investment. And then from there, it's a whole other kind of process. But, um, but yeah, it's really, for me, just distillation because the space is super new, super diverse, very subjective. So it's, hey, what, what, are, what actually matters here? And that, that's what's important. We had a and conversation with um, Devin Finzer lately, and this probably leads into the next section that I think David's um, going to ask about with, you know, pertaining to flow. But as we kind of get into that, um, he, he kind of made this comment where he, he still feels like we're in the 56K days of, in terms of um, NFTs, like because of some transactions per second limiters on networks like Ethereum, for instance. So it feels like the next unlock is going to be in this multi-chain world where we have various layer twos and maybe other layer ones that are um, you know, allowing for lower value transactions to occur. Uh, what do you think of that take? Is that sort of how you see the world? The reason we're seeing big $69 million transactions with, with people and $2.5 million Jack Dorsey tweets is because we're in the days of you know, scarce block space, essentially, so high value transactions. But we are moving to this next unlock, additional infrastructure being built to make block space for NFTs more plentiful, and we'll get different uh, use cases as a result of that. Do you think that's a good framing of, of what's happening right now on the infrastructure side? Yeah, so it's a really kind of good point to bring up where for me, and a high value NFT should be issued on Ethereum because that is the, the best chain to issue NFTs on without a doubt. But something like a game, you can't really uh, have a great game, highly functional game on, on Ethereum main chain, mainnet, right? Because it's kind of, um, yeah, there's scalability, scalability issues, obviously. So I think I'm all for a multi-chain world. My number one thing is giving users true property rights. That That's like my, my go-to. It's like, as long as the user's, as long as the issuer of that NFT cannot delete your stuff, then I, I then I'm fine, right? You know, and it, some people say flows a little bit centralized, and um, you know that's you know there's some argument there, but as long as flow cannot delete their stuff, user stuff, then I'm okay with it. Um, and I do think that what we're seeing, luckily, and I think this is great, is a lot of teams are building kind of bridges to Ethereum, 
And so they're able to you know, do their own thing in a maybe highly scalable way, and then kind of port over to Ethereum mainnet whenever need be. And so that's really important about, because I do think that I don't want there to be like the flow universe and the Ethereum universe and the Polkadot universe or whatever. I want it to be all kind of this metaverse, right? All connected. And um, I think by building these bridges and building these kind of solutions that interact with each other is super, super important. And um, yeah, in terms of like where we are, oh my gosh, like we are in the pre-Napster uh, days of, of this revolution. Like, I don't even know what came before Napster, but like we still have iTunes and iTunes is going to be crazy, but that's still pretty old now. And then we're going to get the Spotify's and even like, you know, a few years, we're going to have some other thing that's not Spotify. It's going to be something else. And so we are just unbelievably early in all this. And uh, I don't know exactly where it's going to go, but, um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully I'm involved and in, in still here. <laughs> Andrew, you've unpacked it a little bit, but I, I want to keep going because there's a question of what actually makes an NFT an NFT, right? And you said that like, if you issue an NFT on Flow, but Flow can't delete your ownership of that, that makes you happy and that makes you satisfied. Uh, I, would, I would want to keep going and say that if you are able to take that NFT and achieve the maximum level of self-sovereign ownership over that NFT, then that's what makes me satisfied, right? Because there's a spectrum of self-sovereign ownership, right? One thing I'm worried about is that uh, these more centralized blockchains like Flow are going to receive uh, adoption in the same way we were talking earlier, where like Gronk was issuing his NFTs, and then people were like, oh, Gronk has this new product, I'll go buy it without understanding that they're really buying into an experiment. What I'm worried about is that people are going to be buying these Flow blockchain NFTs, and then they're going to be like, cool, I have an NFT. And then their friends are going to be buying this Ethereum blockchain NFT. And then they're also going to be like, cool, I have my NFT. Except in my, in my version of the world, in version of the future, that Ethereum NFT will have superpowers because of the composability that you find on Ethereum. And a Flow NFT is just kind of this item. Kind of, kind of like in the way, same way Bitcoin is a pet rock. Well, your NFT on flow is just kind of this NFT on flow. Like, what is it really? Uh, and so what, I, what I'm worried about is all these people that are putting in many, many, many thousands of dollars into NFTs on flow. They're going to be looking at all of the fun times as being happen happening because of composability and DeFi, where all the NFTs on Ethereum have this like software hooks into, you know, Aave compound or, you know, smart, generalized smart contracting stuff. What's your, what's your opinion on that? And, and um, maybe, maybe you can just take it from there. Yeah. Okay. So I think it, it's tough because, you know, flow started what, like, like very recently, like what, two, a month or two ago. Yeah. And so for, for all intents has, and purposes this year. Right. Yeah. Ethereum has a five year, six year head start and, um, and is highly decentralized, highly secure, you know, very stable uh, flow. Uh, so it's it's like it's almost not fair to really compare them at this stage. Um, I do think the Flow team is really great at uh, at kind of getting users to build on their platform and and getting um, and, and making the best experience possible for developers, which I think is really important. But yeah, I, to me, it just comes down to if you can, if you if there's no way that the issuer of an NFT can delete or steal your stuff, that's all that matters. So it's like. Um, yeah, if a chain is centralized, and in theory, you know that they could do that. So that's that's a big issue. But but again, uh, flow just started. So hopefully, in a year from now, they're going to be much more decentralized. And I think that, that that is their objective to over time become more decentralized. And um, so I don't, you know, I, this is probably not <laughs> great to say on the bank list, but I don't care like what chain wins. I just want there to be true property rights where no one can seize your stuff. Like that to me is all, all that matters. So it's like, um, for example, like EOS. Like that's not EOS to me. Sure, it's like an NFT by name, but it's not truly an NFT. Um, 
What you just said fits under the bankless narrative, right? Yeah, like if, yeah, if it's a yeah. bankless tool, it's a bankless tool. Correct. Yeah. And, and, and so, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how, how these different blockchains evolve and maybe, maybe flow is going to head in a more centralized direction. I have no idea. And in that case, then their kind of statuses, you know, T's should not, should be revoked, you know, by, by the community. Um, but, but, I, but again, that's not their objective. Their objective is to, uh, you know, keep, keep going down the, the decentralized route and it's going to take some time, but, um, yeah, to me, it doesn't matter what chain wins, just all about, you know, security and property rights and, and really like user rights. How do you think about that? Right. So like, um, there, there can be stronger guarantees of property rights uh, across different platforms. So like what we just laid out is, is a little bit like there's centralized and there's decentralized, but of course there's this also this space in between, whereas Bitcoin and Ethereum's goal is to be uh, censorship resistant against sovereign state level actors, right? It was all the way to this extreme. Whereas, um, you know, something like flow might be not quite that, right? Maybe the, the U.S. government could take it down, for instance, uh, but m- maybe it's decently resistant against one entity or one set of token holders or something from uh, being able to delete your NFTs, as you put it. D- do you think there's room for this entire spectrum of the NFT space? And is a spectrum the way you, you even think of it, where you've got really strong property rights guarantees, and then you've got other property rights guarantees that aren't quite as strong, but, but still kind of exist. And then, you know, both of those are distinct from completely centralized uh, system, like something like a Fortnite right now, they have skins, right? But we wouldn't call those skins and items NFTs because it's completely centralized. How do you see this? Yeah, it's pretty tough to make kind of like, it's pretty binary, in my opinion. Like you can't just say like, we can't, we have some property rights, and like we we only can seize your stuff in certain instances, right? So um, in a perfect world, you know we're using full World of Warcraft, Fortnite, all these big video games that are all completely on chain and everyone's secure, and we're in the metaverse and everything's completely decentralized and safe and whatnot. That's like a perfect world. I, I understand that that's probably not how things are going to evolve. I, I'm sure it'll be kind of bifurcated in, into certain sections where like, okay, the Fortnite of Ethereum has to exist on like this this kind of side chain that's kind of a little more centralized, but but also, um, you don't necessarily need, I mean, in a perfect world, you would, but um, you don't necessarily need like the strongest product rights for all your Fortnite skins or whatever. But if you have like a piece of art um, that, you know, you bought for $69 million, I don't want there to be any sort of like fuzziness on like whether or not someone, even a state actor could seize this from me. I want to make sure that no matter what, I'm able to, to hold this stuff securely. So yeah, I think that there is going to be a spectrum, but I don't think in reality, that's like how it works. I think it's either like yes or no. Um, but that's just, that's, that's kind of how I see it. Andrew, I don't know if you've had, I know you just came out of surgery, so you probably haven't read my recent article, but I want to get your, uh, get, get your opinion on, uh, on this. Um, NFTs are a tool for disintermediating the emotional relationship between artists and fans. What do you think that does for human culture over the long term? And I know that's a really brainy question that has a lot of implications to it. So uh, I, I just kind of want to get your get your take on that. When we cut off the middlemen between fans and creators, what does that do for humanity in the long term? What do you where do you think this a long term trend going? That's super interesting. Can you dive? I want to hear more about your thesis on that. Can you dive deeper? So we recently had our conversation with Blau where he talked about how Spotify is great for distribution, but is terrible for data because he's not able to see who's listening to his music. And as soon as he dropped his NFTs, he was able to get a list of 60 fans that 
collectively paid him $12 million. So he knows he found 60 people that are, he's in direct contact with that. And one of them purchased the rights to, um, to artistic director for a song of his, right? So like Spotify was never able to provide or facilitate that sort of relationship between fan and creator, right? Um, now all of a sudden, uh, Blau has these these are uh, established connections directly to his fans that allowed him to have a tighter feedback loop between the the value that he produces produces as an, as an artist and what his fans want. And I and my my um, thesis is that this is generalizable for all artists, all creations. And so would if and I guess it's something similar to the Web two versus Web three thesis as well, where all of a sudden the disintermediate disintermediation is the status quo, and all of a sudden value creators and value consumers are direct, right? Um, is is this uh, is this something that you've thought about with NFTs, and and where do you think that this uh, trend is going? Oh, I, I haven't thought about that really, but I think it's really interesting. I you know I I I think that we're like in a creative a creator's renaissance where they suddenly have all the power to do whatever they would like, which I think is unbelievably important. And like the metaverse to me is about two things really. It's about property rights and also optionality. So like you, like it, within the metaverse or within this virtual world that we're all living in, you have the option. So like if, if he wants to use Spotify, he should be able to use Spotify. If he wants to go direct to his fans, he should be able to go direct to his fans. I think that there's a lot of trade-offs between like um, ease for, for those things, because Blau is an OG. He's been in NFTs for a long time and crypto for a long time. So like he, he knows what to do and he, he clearly like has done it very well. Uh, but then there's some new people who are like, listen, I don't know the first thing about NFTs. I want to start getting involved, but where do I, what do I do? Where do I start? And so in that instance, like a Spotify of NFTs type platform, which maybe is a little more centralized, but kind of can help people along the way. That makes a lot of sense to me. So it's like, I don't, I, it really, I think, I think this is where the spectrum comes in. Cause it's like, and then in that instance, like it's the option to do whatever you please. And that's to me is the most important thing. What this is all about, because when you have the right, uh, the secure ownership of stuff, then you can choose, Hey, I want to do it my way. I want to do it their way, whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's like the biggest force for good or one of the biggest force for goods in this whole revolution is like bringing power to the people. And uh, that's across like, you know, be, uh, being on banks, you know, to suddenly being able to uh, have your own kind of control over your financial destiny and um, over your own goods with NFTs. And, um, you know, I, I really do think that, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's like the biggest force multiplier for good in the space for sure. Andrew, I don't think I was clear on something until just now, until you mentioned it. So um, you, your concept of the metaverse and your thesis behind that, I was, I was, definitely thought that that was about humanity's move from the analog world into this like digital world where things are in virtual reality and there's and like virtual goods and we have like digital commerce everything is being digitized right zoomers are there millennials are, are getting there right older generations might not understand but we are all moving into the metaverse but you said two things that are super interesting to me and important property rights and optionality preserving those two things in the metaverse is vitally important, right? Well, I guess, what's the contrast? What if we don't preserve, what if humanity, this is another maybe brainy question, but what if humanity enters the metaverse, but we forget we don't have property rights in the metaverse. Someone else owns all of our property, big centralized digital companies. What if we enter the, the, the metaverse and we don't have optionality? So there is only one virtual reality you can enter into. And, and by the way, it's owned 51% share by Mark Zuckerberg. It's like, is, is that the, the contrasting world here? Um, tell me about that. Property rights and optionality in the metaverse. 
I mean, that's like the nightmare scenario that every movie and like book is about is like that there's one or a couple centralized entities that control, um, you know, control the platforms and, and kind of spaces that we use and exist in today. I mean, we can see it play out now with like Facebook and, and kind of these other social platforms where, um, you know, Facebook is, is, I don't know if this is accurate, but probably uh, Facebook is blamed for a lot of like, you know, revolutions and a lot of like misinformation and a lot of things that are not great happening because it's in their in their you know personal they're, they're, they personally profit from that stuff happening so that's not that's not a great future um, and if they're doing that now they don't really mind and like they're destabilizing countries and like governments then you have to imagine that like if we're in like a world where uh, for example like okay you have to work this metaverse job in order to get your salary you know what I mean that's great like that that's crazy that, that would suck um, but but it, I want to be in a in a world where um, you know it has kind of, kind of American ideals maybe like older American ideals. I don't know about today, but um, where like you can, you are free to do and own whatever you want and people can't tell you what to do or, and, and your money is your money, your stuff's your stuff. If you want to go uh, work in the physical world, go do that. If you want to go work in the metaverse, go do that. Um, yeah. It, it's just all about options and, and being able to exit. I think Balaji often talks about like the ability to exit is one of the most um, kind of sought after things to pursue. And I think he said that like, we're at a level of regulatory capture in the United States where um, you can't easily exit systems, uh, whether they be like, you know, your phone bill, your internet bill or whatever, like your, your optionality is limited to like two people and they're both kind of in cahoots with each other and a little bit evil. And that's like not, not a great future. Um, so I think just being able to have the option, yeah, options to do whatever you please and be, and have secure ownership of your stuff, like that's all what matters. Um, so, yeah, I think that makes sense as to why property rights are such an integral part of that thesis, because if you don't have property rights, you don't have freedom. Right. Yeah. Awesome. And, and also like all the stuff you do, all the time, money and effort you spend in the, in the digital world is like for nothing. You know, right. So I think that that's also, uh, you know, important. Andrew, as well, we close here, you were, you were super predictive in our last, uh, episode, like in, incredible, uh, timing on all of that. Um, what are your predictions now? So you made some big, bold predictions. Uh, previously, this was in September. What are you thinking now? Do you, do you hold to those predictions? Do you accelerate the timeline? What's, uh, what are your latest predictions here as we are, you know, March of 2021? Yeah, I got to say, I, I predict Paris Hilton is going to do an NFT soon because she, <laughs> she's following me and a lot of other NFT people. Um, I, I think, obviously, my, my time frame of to reach a trillion dollar market cap and in a, in a 10 year time frame is, is gone. It's going to be much shorter. I don't know uh, when that will be. I almost like don't even want to make a prediction now. Cause I have, I have no idea. Um, but you know, as long as we're in this environment, this macro environment of low rates, fed printing every single time the market has a hiccup and, and crypto is in a bull cycle. Like I, I think it's, it, I think it can get a lot crazier from here, which will only accelerate all these trends and metaverse trends that are happening anyway. So if I had to make a prediction, it's going to be a lot bigger, uh, faster than, 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 than what I previously pred predicted. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's good to hear, Andrew. Well, thank you so much for coming back on to the Bankless show. Uh, we'll have you every single time that, that you want to come on because you are such a, tre a treasure trove of information. And so thank you for, for making the time. Thank you so much, guys. It's, it's been, it's been awesome. Awesome. Andrew Bankless Nation. Uh, I think um, you'll, 
I think Andrew will be announcing some interesting things into the future. So definitely follow him on Twitter. Also uh, stay tuned to his Zima Red newsletter, which is just a fantastic place for big thought pieces on NFTs. Make sure you sign up for that. We will get that in the show notes as well. Of course, guys, risks and disclaimers. ETH is risky. NFT NFTs are risky too, at least from a value perspective. We may be in a mania, maybe not. You could lose what you put in, so be careful out there. But we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're joining us on the Bankless Journey. Thanks a lot.